Beyond the Lowdown, a Down Syndrome podcast, Dr. Julian York gives us the lowdown on Down Syndrome and Dermatology. Over to you, Hannah Mola. Thanks, Danielle. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Lowdown podcast. My name is Hina Mahmoud. I am an occupational therapist at the DSRF, and joining me is my wonderful co-host, Marla Folden, who is a speech-language pathologist at the DSRF. Um, good morning, Marla. Hello, Hina. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm excited for today. Yeah, I know. Exactly. This is a really big topic, and I've yeah. been telling some families that we're going to have our guest on today, so they're very excited to learn um, all things from our guests. Um, but before we continue on with our episode, we would love for you to hit that subscribe button and leave a review of our podcast on your chosen podcast platform. Remember to check out our episode pages for additional resources um, related to each episode. You can also follow the Down Syndrome Resource Foundation at www.dsrf.org and on Instagram and Twitter by following at DSRF Canada. So on today's episode, we are shifting gears towards a more medical topic, and we will be talking about the body's largest organ, the skin. If you have a loved one with Down syndrome in your life, you have invariably noticed that there can be some skin issues that are lingering and tricky to resolve. So our guest today will help us understand the complex nature of dermatological issues in Down syndrome and also how they can be prevented and treated. Mm-hmm. Dr. Jillian Rourke is a dermatologist practicing in New Hampshire. She attended Harvard Medical School and interned at Mass General in Pediatrics. That's where all the exciting stuff is happening. Yeah. Um, she now specializes in pediatric care and has also collaborated with the Down Syndrome Medical Interest Research Group, providing insights and education to the other members there, which is super valuable. Um, she's currently an assistant professor of surgery at Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth. And she also just published a review article article on the skin conditions associated with DS just in August 2021. I think I just read that. Mm-hmm. Um, and this makes her the perfect person for us to talk to today. So hi there, Jillian. Welcome to the Lowdown Podcast. Well, hello there. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Oh, it's absolutely our pleasure. We mm-hmm. have a tradition here at the Lowdown of starting off with some secret questions that are not scary, um, just so that our listeners can get to know you a little bit. Uh, do you, Are you up for that? Absolutely. Here we go. <laughs> Here we go. You so, promise there won't be any math involved. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so question number one, if you had to enter in a talent show, what would you like to do? We have a lot of talent shows around here at the DSM. Yeah, so. I think I would... Um, play my berry saxophone. Wow. That'd be super mm-hmm. fun. Yep. Yep. Have you been playing I'm, that for a long time? I have. I've been playing it since high school Oh wow! wow. and, you know, it took a little bit of time off during school and kids and all that, but I'm back on the swing of things. And I actually just got a berry saxophone last week. So I'm, I would Ooh. totally bring out my berry and play oh, some jazz awesome. or some yeah. funk. Yeah, fun. Okay, I want to go to that talent show. Yeah. Awesome. Um, question number two is: What is your favorite brunch food? 
Ooh, favorite brunch food is eggs Benedict. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That is Over the correct here. answer. Yes. That, yeah. <laughs> With delicious hollandaise sauce, right? <laughs> On the yeah. West Coast over here, we enjoy a salmon eggs Benedict. So oh, yeah. Over. Yeah, there's a crab crab cakes Benedict over here in New England, too. So that's yeah. really yummy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, the seafood situation. In, yeah, I was just going to say the seafood situation in New England must just be amazing. Just yeah. like, yeah, yeah, it is. It is absolutely. We should do a lobsters Benedict. I've never had oh, that. That actually sounds good, good right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> good. Very much so. Uh, question number three, if you could learn a new language with no effort at all, and you just kind of absorb it overnight, um, mm. what language would you be absorbing? Oh, I think I would go with Spanish. Um, I speak French, but um, I use it somewhat in the office, but not as much as I wish I could. And so I think I would learn Spanish just so I could communicate better with my patients. And yeah. Um, I'd love to to travel more in South America. And um, so, yeah, Spanish. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Love it. Okay. I'm going to take over for the last two questions. Imagine you're walking in the forest, nice, calm day, just doing some self-care and you run across an animal. Which animal would you like to run across while in the forest? Like to. Like to. Mm, Like to. (laughs) I think a porcupine. Oh, They're kind of waddly and fun. They're so waddly and they're so slow moving and deliberate. (laughs) And I just, I think they're pretty adorable. Yeah. And, not, and non-threatening from and a non-threatening. Yeah. So you're not going to, as long as you're them. not a dog. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Love that. That's such a great answer. Um, and then our last question, um, you know, you're very busy and your job requires a lot of, uh, you know, back and forth and going and seeing patients. What is your way to de-stress at the end of the day? Yeah. So I, I really like to read at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to watch funny TV, watch Ooh. stand-up comedy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to exercise. I guess I do a, a couple of things to de- de-stress, right. but yeah, I think in, all in that category. Yeah. yeah. Kind of shifting away from medicine, doing something different just to kind of recharge that way. hundred percent, hundred percent. Excellent. Awesome. Well, thanks for indulging us in that. That was kind of cool. Still love that porcupine answer. I think that's such a great answer. <laughs> totally unexpected. No, I feel like let's let's just go for a walk in the woods. We can talk about dermatology. That's good. Yes, I'm in exactly. New Hampshire. We can do it right outside. <laughs> so true. Um, all right. So let's kind of start with how um, how did you get into the area of dermatology and specializing in people with Down syndrome? So I got into the field of dermatology in kind of a roundabout way. I always knew that I wanted to go into pediatrics, but um, didn't necessarily think dermatology until about fourth year of medical school um, when I did a formal rotation um, uh, at Boston Children's Hospital and just fell in love with the field and the people in the field. And I I, I think the working with um, individuals with special needs was an interest since I was really young. Um, My grandmother was a public school teacher um, in the through 50s, 60s, 70s, all the way up until the 80s. Um, and she worked with 
people with special needs and was a big advocate for um, inclusion and advocacy. So, so I kind of learned from my grandmother um, Mm -hmm. about how important it was to really advocate and take care of people with special needs. And then my mother was um, a pediatric physical therapist at Easter Seals when I was a kid. So we did the buddy walks and, you know, it was just kind of a part of my life. Um, and then when I got to medical school, I actually heard Brian Scott Co. talk and a couple of in, I think Nikki Bomber too, and they brought in a couple of families um, it, it, and, and individuals with Down syndrome into the classroom. And I just really always liked those interactions a lot. Mm-hmm. And I really liked the physicians taking care of people with Down syndrome. And I would say it was, you know, really my intern year at Mass General. I had, again, known that I wanted to do, um, you know, you know kind of specialize in, in special needs care and dermatology. And so I got to hang out for a month with Dr. Scott Cohen crew at MGH. And it was really at that time, I was like, oh my gosh, they have so many skin issues. Like, why is anyone talking about this? You know, because you go to the literature. (laughs) Yeah. You go to the literature and there's just like all these case reports of rare things. And while rare things are important, like, why isn't anyone talking about folliculitis and dandruff and all this hair loss issues? And, uh, you know, so. Um, it was really in that clinic, I was like, huh, we've got a lot of work to do here. <laughs> and yeah. then when I started my residency at UMass, they were just starting a multidisciplinary Down syndrome clinic there. And I felt really fortunate that a lot of the doctors there, geneticists, the dermatology practice was very supportive of me trying to see patients with Down syndrome and kind of worked into my schedule ways for me to be a part of that multidisciplinary clinic. So I think it was really at that point that I started to gain a lot more like kind of clinical experience and um, yeah. And then I think like the rest is history. I, I feel like I'm the luckiest person alive to get to work with pediatric dermatologists seeing kids. And I also get to work with the Down syndrome community, seeing kids and adults. And I don't think you could ask for a better group of people to work with. So mm-hmm. So, you know, but it's really, I mean, I really come at this from a perspective of like, there's not a lot about this out there. I think there's humongous gaps in care and there's a lot we need to learn and a lot we need to improve on. And like, that's, that's what I'm dedicating myself to because Mm -hmm. I mean, almost every week I see somebody in my office and it's just like, oh my gosh, this has been going on forever. Yay. I'm so happy we can fix this. So like the more I can get out and more I can educate like patients and families, um, mm, cause I yeah. wish it, and, and I will tell you, we're, we're starting to build an infrastructure, at least amongst the pediatric dermatology community to have more providers kind of specialize in this, but you know, there's only so many of us and yeah. we want to be able to provide care to as many people mm-hmm. as we can. So I hope this podcast kind of accomplishes that today. Yeah, absolutely. And I love the fact that I admire the fact that you saw that there was a gap there and that our community of individuals with Down syndrome did not have somebody specializing in dermatology and not really looking into skin issues. And then you're like, okay, so this is an area of need. I'm going to apply myself to that. So that's, that's kind of how things are going to grow and we can reach the wider community. Right. So yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So on that, this leads us beautifully into our next question. So let's talk about 
skin and hair issues, are they, how common are they in people with Down syndrome? And is there a reason for why we see it so often? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I think, I think they're common. Of course, I have a little bit of bias, right? Because I, I see them in my dermatology office, but we actually, we don't have great statistics behind this. There was one study that said that, um, I think it was amongst surveyed young adults and their loved ones that at least over 50% of people had a skin complaint. So, um, you know, and that's up there with like thyroid disease, which we talk so much about with Down syndrome. So I, I think it is very common. Um, I think that there are certainly dermatologic conditions that are, are, um, very much so tied to the trisomy of chromosome 21. And then there are ones that just kind of happen, you know, because there's, family history of other skin conditions. But mm-hmm. I think as we chat today, we'll kind of talk about the downstream effects, um, mostly on the immune system from yes. the trisomy of chromosome 21 that lead to more skin and hair um, conditions. Um, uh, so yeah, so I think it is common. Um, there's, and there's a huge phenotypic range, right? Like, so one of the most common things mm-hmm. we see is dry skin, you know, and I, and I, I would think a lot of people with Down syndrome would tell you, yeah, I have dry skin. Um, and then there's there, you know, there's, there's other things that are not quite as, quite as common, but, um, right. yeah. Yeah, it's interesting yeah. too because I, I I just want to clarify that because it is related to trisomy twenty one doesn't mean that things are not treatable. Oh, hundred percent. What happens yeah. is there's a bit of oversight. You know, it's oh yeah, down syndrome mm-hmm. kind of a thing, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean you don't do anything about it. Oh my you know, gosh, yeah. no, yes, Sorry. no, 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 no. Right. And I think like what you know what my goal is with my career, and I can I can tell you a lot of other people feel this way is that by elucidating the mechanisms behind the skin conditions that are caused by the trisomy of 21, we can mm-hmm. really improve treatment, you know, um, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. the exciting thing. And so, yes. yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I do hear that from families though, exactly what you're saying. It's like, oh, well, my kid has dandruff, but like, whatever, that's just part of Down syndrome. Yeah. It's like, no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Like people with Down syndrome do have more significant dandruff, but okay, like let's treat it. <laughs> yeah, right. you don't have to yeah. stay that yeah. way. Right. No, 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 yeah. no, no. Good. I'm glad we yeah, And I think the point. common That's important. <laughs> yeah, very important. And I think the common misconception is like that. Oh, it's just dandruff or oh, it's just dry skin, but it's very, it's not easy to live with on a day-to-day basis. Right. So for a lot of our guys that may or not be able to either communicate that to us or it's not, they're not understanding how it's feeling doesn't mean that it shouldn't be treated and it won't improve their quality of life. So it's not just dandruff. It is something that's annoying to have for them too. So, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, from a, from a symptom standpoint, meaning Mm -hmm. like persistent scalpage, I mean, I've taken care of a lot of patients like, you know, they're trying to concentrate in school and their scalp is really itchy. So they're itching, 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 or, you know, they have calluses all over their feet and they're, they can't really walk so well. And gee, if we could address that dry skin, but then I also think, you know, um, we really need to pay attention to, you know, physical appearance and that that matters for people regardless. Um, and so having, 
white flaky scale all over your shirt. Like we just you know, yeah. we need to do that. We would worry <laughs> we about it when it's that. What if it's us having the issue we're worrying about it? So why would it be any different? Right. So Absolutely. Like, they need to yeah. also be cognizant of it. And it's Absolutely. not helping our overarching goal of being included. Right. Oh, certainly. It's are different enough. Mm -hmm. We don't need Mm -hmm. those extra things to make them more different or more othered. Yeah. You know, so yeah, Yeah. I I agree with you. Absolutely. Um, so one issue that we see very often, um, especially like a lot of mine and Marla's clients, um, are um having a challenge with alopecia. So let's talk a little bit about why alopecia happens. Um, I have a few follow-ups, but like can you for our listeners, can you maybe just define alopecia for them so they can get a good understanding of what exactly it is? Sure. And I, I wanted to ask in what, what kind of alopecia, is it the Uh, hair loss of like little of circles of hair throughout the scalp, or is it like thinning of the hair as, as a person gets older? Well, I mean, I, yeah, both. Cause I think Mm -hmm. in in that answer, you've already educated me that there are different kinds of alopecia. So we're good to know. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the most, um, common one that we see in the pediatric population and adolescent population is something called alopecia areata, Mm -hmm. which is a autoimmune form of alopecia. And this is more common in in Down syndrome because of the associations with autoimmune conditions and immune dysregulation. And um, we actually don't know that much about this in Down syndrome. We have these clinical observations. We all, you know, we all have them, but we just don't have a lot of research mm-hmm. um, really thoroughly describing them. I will tell you from the research and from, you know, my clinical experience, um, alopecia areata tends to appear younger in people with Down syndrome. So I would say ages five, six, seven. Okay. Early school years. Early school years. There's a huge range. So on what it looks like. So alopecia areata classically looks like little circles of hair loss. So a lot of people will say there'll be like little quarter sizes of hair loss and they're very, very well defined. So it's like you could take a marker and like draw a circle around where it is. Okay. Mm -hmm. And some people will have like a few circles of this kind of hair loss on the scalp. Other people will lose all of their hair. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to predict, you know, what's going to happen once you lose one one little circle, either that could stay or you could lose all of your hair. Mm -hmm. And then the kind of the most extreme form of alopecia areata is something called alopecia universalis, where you would then lose your eyebrows and Mm -hmm. eyelashes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So huge range. I would say um, we don't know in Down syndrome, like what is the most common kind? There are some case reports or case series, I should say, that that say, oh, well, Down, Down syndrome alopecia areata is always more severe. It's a more severe case, meaning more people will have all of their hair lost or their eyebrows and eyelashes included. But uh, I don't always see that in clinics, so I don't know if we can necessarily say that, but I can, mm-hmm. I do think we, we see it younger in age. Now, 
the reason why we think we see it more commonly and perhaps younger is that um, chromosome 21 contains a gene called the AIR gene, A-I-R-E. And when we've studied alopecia areata, we know that that gene is really important and dysfunction in that gene can kind of lead to alopecia areata. And so having three copies of it, perhaps that's one reason why um, we see it. And that gene is in that kind of mechanism of alopecia areata with the immune system is super closely related to hypothyroidism, Mm. which we know is really common. Mm -hmm. So it's like similar pathway for both conditions. Okay. There's also other, and we'll probably touch upon this later, but there's other um, immune dysregulation with Down syndrome that we're just starting to understand with something called interferon, interferon alpha. And there's actually a couple of genes on chromosome 21, again, that have to do with interferon, specifically interferon receptor. So we think having you know, three copies of chromosome 21 and more of this interferon receptor might also kind of predispose people towards alopecia areata. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And that's kind of interesting because as we were talking about earlier, like treatment. Yeah. (laughs) So there are certain treatments that kind of target interferon more than others. And that's that's why we think that, you know, they might be more helpful with mm-hmm. alopecia areata. And we can okay. talk about that in a minute. So, sure. yeah, no, I mean, I think that's, that's kind of was where I was headed in that direction. So, mm-hmm. I mean, considering that the expression of the 21st chromosome makes it more likely that they're going to experience alopecia areata. So th- there's nothing that you can really do to prevent it. Am I correct? Right. So then, so no. what, yeah. So what can we do to, um, I mean, is from your perspective, is alopecia, uh, can it be permanent? Could it reoccur throughout the lifespan? Like what is, what is that? Like? Yeah. Yeah. So this is one of those, those conditions where I always say, I wish more than anything, I had a crystal ball Yeah. because for some people, alopecia areata is a very short lived thing. Mm-hmm. Like they have it for a year or two, they grow their hair back. You never see it again. It yeah. just parts ways. <laughs> There's mm. other other people who they'll always have some small patches of alopecia areata, but they'll be tiny and you know not not too bothersome. Mm-hmm. For other people, it might all grow back, and then ten years later, they might lose all their hair, and then that might all grow back, and then that never happens again. And then there's other people who just lose all of their hair and they never grow back. Period. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very tricky to know. Um, yeah. so it's kind and, of, and that's an annoying answer to have to yeah, give no, as a no. doctor, but it's just the truth. You know, no. you never know. Yeah. And that's so. like that with so many things that you can't necessarily, especially with autoimmune stuff, cause it can just mm-hmm. kind of come out of nowhere. But, um, before we jump into treatment, I know that is there a connection between anxiety and stress and the not necessarily the overall prevalence of alopecia, but maybe the expression of alopecia being worse. Cause we've noticed that with some of our students here, where if there's stress, you know, stress, is, whether it's household stress from parents or they themselves are stressed or, or anxious, mm-hmm. it seems to be worse for them. Is there mm-hmm. a connection? Mm-hmm. 
I think it's a really difficult thing to answer because it's an extremely difficult thing to study. Mm -hmm. I mean, I will tell you that in general, like I try to shy away from saying like you being stressed out is causing your alopecia area (laughs) (laughs) because the last thing I want people to feel is like, this is their fault. And, and I will tell you that's from working with a couple different hair specialists through the years, like this, like, it's just a really hard thing to study. Now that said, do I think that the immune system is intimately related with our stress levels and that whole system in our body. Like, absolutely I do, but Mm -hmm. I, I think there's lots of other things going on. Mm -hmm. Um, I agree with you at, at times, you know, I've had some of my patients lose parents and then like, you know, their alopecia explodes, you know, Mm -hmm. but it's not always the case. So we always say, I don't want you to think that this is your fault, but if you're having stressful times in your life, like there's absolutely no downside to trying to address that and, and, and improve that. Now, whether or not it will improve your alopecia areata, I don't know, but yeah. it's always worthwhile addressing. Right. There's, I tend to find with alopecia areata, even more so than other conditions, like a lot of blame is, <laughs> is put on by the, like the patient feels responsible for it. And mm-hmm. even more so the parent or loved one, it's like, mm-hmm. what did I do to have yeah. this happen? Because it's such a, it's such an emotional and it's, it's a disfiguring condition. Mm-hmm. It's not something that you can hide easily. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, hair is such an integral part of our self-identity. So yeah. I tend to yeah. try to, you know, we should be clear that it's not in, in our clinic. It's not like every time we see a stressed out kid, the next week they come in their ball. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, certainly. Oh my heavens. Same thing out. in my, same thing in my practice. <laughs> yeah. Plenty of stressed out kids who don't. Yeah. Don't right. Bald, so. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. But I do want to say something before we move on to treatment that I think is really, really important. Um, that I always try to say, regardless of like who I'm talking to dermatologists, pediatricians, or parents or patients, um, let's say, that you do develop alopecia areata, the really, really important thing to do is to make sure that thyroid screening is up to date. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because Mm -hmm. having alopecia areata can be a sign of a thyroid condition. Okay. So, and we should be doing annual thyroid screening, Mm -hmm. you know, so it's at birth six months and then annually up until I think 20, 21 years. And then after that, it can be every one to two years, but I would, you know, I always just check like, okay, is thyroid screening up to date? And Hey, if it's 10 months ago, we're going to check it now, you know, just to see. Yeah. So that's Mm -hmm. really, really important to know Mm -hmm. that. Awesome. Mm -hmm. So let's then move on to treatment. So what, so our parents that are listening and out there, what can they do? What's been shown to work? What's Mm -hmm. out there? Yep. Yeah. So I always like to take a step back when we start talking about treatment and say the following, we never want the treatment to be worse than the condition itself. And that's Mm -hmm. a huge mouthful, (laughs) but like, that's really important. So alopecia areata, I would say in the next five, 10 years, we're going to see some huge breakthroughs with treatment. And we're already 
kind of starting to see those and there are clinical trials in place for, for, for those to be put in place. Um, but right now, like what I have in the pediatric population is not, you know, there's not really too much out there. Um, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean we just throw our hands up and like, say, this is, you know, we're done with this. So, um, there are topical options. Okay. And in that category, most often topical steroids. Okay. And obviously you're, you're going to have to consult with your healthcare provider on what strengths to use. But one thing I always like to empower patients and families with is knowing that topical steroids come in different vehicles. And what I mean by that is they don't all just come in creams or greasy things like ointment, like a Vaseline, they come in foams, they come in solutions, and they come in like really runny lotions. Um, Because I've definitely had patients referred into me with and without Down syndrome, that their very well-meaning care like provider gave them a prescription for a topical steroid because they knew that was the right thing, but they gave them an ointment or a cream. And it's like, how are you going to hide that in your hair? (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> with yeah. all this gunky stuff. Yeah. yeah. Like, blah. Okay. So that goes, the treatment should never be worse than the condition itself right there. Okay. So knowing that there are solutions and foams and really light lotions, um, and in oils too, like that's really, really helpful. And you should mm-hmm. bring that up with your care provider. Okay. Mm-hmm. And typically what we'll use is, um, you know, those topical steroids, usually about once a day for a period of time, maybe sometimes some weekends off. Um, because one of the risks with topical steroids is that it can thin the skin. Mm. So we want to be careful and about making sure that we're not just continuously using this for months and months and months. Right. Um, we will also use an over-the-counter um, treatment called minoxidil. Um, it is also known as Rogaine and more people have probably heard of it that way. Mm-hmm. That doesn't necessarily address the like uh, immune system and quieting it down the immune system, like a topical steroid would, but mm-hmm. I kind of explain it's like fertilizer. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's going to help, help your lawn grow a little bit, like yeah. help the hair grow a bit. Okay. Um, <clears throat> There are also topical agents that can kind of, this sounds odd, but they can irritate the skin a little bit. And that can actually trick the immune system to kind of stop doing what it's doing, making the hair fall out. Um, But those are definitely something that you have to work with your doctor with closely. And I would say just in general, alopecia areata, if you have access to a dermatologist, that's a really good reason to go see a dermatologist because they're mm-hmm. going to be specialized in a lot of these topical treatments. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so in um, some of those irritating an- agents include tretinoin, anthralin, squaric acid. So just kind of knowing that those exist, I think is an important thing. Mm-hmm. Um There are um, injections that we can do into the scalp, um, and that is typically with a steroid. Mm -hmm. And this is something that it is uncomfortable, I have to be honest, um, but there are- It doesn't sound very good. (laughs) It's not, no, it's horrible. But, But, you know, there are ways to make it so that it is not excruciating. So- Mm -hmm. 
asking for numbing cream ahead of the time, something like Emla, which is a prescription topical lidocaine or using, mm-hmm. or another one called LMX and putting that on a couple hours ahead of time, using ice, using vibration, um, using child life if it's available. So I, I, I really don't like to do injections without at least talking through those options with my patients. Okay. Mm-hmm. In terms of medicines by mouth, sometimes we'll use very, very brief courses of oral prednisone, but I really don't like to do this, especially in our uh, patients with Down syndrome, because they are at risk for diabetes and other, you know, other issues that can kind of not do so great with prednisone. So Mm -hmm. I don't really use that too much. The kind of up and coming oral treatment for alopecia areata is something called a JAK inhibitor. Okay. And there's actually clinical trials right now at University of Colorado looking at Down syndrome and JAK inhibitors with alopecia areata and other skin conditions. Because you might remember me talking about that interferon thing, that that like immune dysregulation. So JAK, JAK inhibitors actually block interferon. And out of all the treatments that we have, for alopecia areata, that is the most successful one. And you can read about this. You know, there's actually been some nice case reports of people with Down syndrome going on JAK inhibitors and their alopecia areata basically reversing itself. Hmm. But, you know, this is a clinical trial, right? So we don't know all the safety data with this. It's not available yet. Yeah, There has been hope that we could try to harness this mechanism and find a way to put it on topically, like put it in a cream and wouldn't that be cool, right? You wouldn't have Mm -hmm. to take a medicine by mouth, but we're still trying to figure that all out. So as, Mm -hmm. as you can see with my like five minute answer, (laughs) there's things out there and, you know, and like, it shouldn't just be like, oh, whatever. It's alopecia areata. Like, let's move on. Like, no, you should, we should talk about some of these options and, and figure out what the best fit is best fit is for the individual. Um, But there's definitely a lot out there. And then I will also say that many of my patients decide that they don't want to treat or they've tried treatments and it's not effective. And um, it is sometimes upsetting to, to hear from a doctor, like, let's talk about a hair prosthetic, like, let's Mm -hmm. talk about a wig. Mm -hmm. Um, And, um, I will tell you though that so many of my patients have benefited tremendously from going to someone who really knows what they're doing with hair prosthesis and they are just like completely ecstatic and thrilled. And so, you know, I try not to have that conversation feel like it's a failure and like this is the end of the road and like this is all that's left um because it can be an extremely like empowering thing to have in your yeah. life i mean i've had yeah. so many patients benefit from that tremendously so yeah. um and um you know a lot of the times insurance companies with the diagnosis of alopecia areata will cover mm-hmm. a wig mm-hmm, through a um store, you know, that yeah. I would say more of like a, a, a medical hair prosthetic store. Mm-hmm. And so, cause they can be very expensive out of pocket. Oh, yeah. So I would definitely talk to your provider about that. Mm-hmm. Um, cause that yeah. can be 
life-changing. I've had that happen yeah. with so many patients. So yeah. yeah. And I've, we have, I, I can think of a couple of our students um, that where the alternate option is that they are just fine with not, they're just embracing the fact that the hair is never going to totally. come back. So yeah. whatever yeah. your comfort level is, whatever Absolutely. your you know personal choice is, you can also just not worry about it and just be bald for the rest of your life. And, you know, just walk you got it. it. Right? Nope, so, that was yeah, going to be so the last option. thing I was going to say. You yeah. can totally rock it. And I yeah. have so many patients who love rocking it. <laughs> and exactly. that's great, you yeah. know? And, yeah. and so it, that's, that's why we always start with that quote, the treatment should never be worse than the condition itself. So even yeah. if that is a hair prosthetic and it's, you just don't like the way it feels and it's itchy and you want to rock it, like rock it. Exactly. <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Awesome. Well, thank you. Yeah, that was a, a it was a really good overview of what's out there because I think you're right. A lot of the times parents will be given one option from a dermatologist. And if it doesn't work, then they're just like, all right, we'll just give up. So there are lots of avenues to explore. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that I've had a couple of um parents that have tried alternative like natural remedies, but obviously we know that you know, that's your personal choice, just try what you can, but it's nice to know that there's lots of medical options out there as well Mm -hmm. for them to Mm -hmm. explore. Great. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. So let's move on to another common thing that we notice um, with our population of individuals with Down syndrome, and that is damage on and around the fingernails. So sometimes, you know, we see deep ridges or dents um, or, you know, really painful looking hangnails or skin damage. Um, So what's going on over there? I, well, I think there can be a lot of different things going on. So, I mean, alopecia areata, um, you can have associated nail findings with that, like Mm. nail pitting and ridging. So that might be part of it. Um, you can see psoriasis of the nails, which, um, psoriasis we think is a bit more common with alopecia areata. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sorry, with down syndrome, excuse me. Um, you know, I also think that there's, um, there's a bit more, oh, we say in dermatology, like outside job, meaning like sometimes there's habit ticks of mm-hmm. wanting to, to pick or bite the nails. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a more challenging thing to like, um, actually you guys are the pros at helping me with that. <laughs> talking with occupational therapy, um, Mm -hmm. um, and actually speech therapy too, because oftentimes it's, it's, uh, it's caused because, you know, not really being able to articulate oneself and one's emotions and it's done out of frustration. So, so yeah, so I think there's like lots of different stuff that could be going on. And then, you know, also like just more dry skin, um, and fragile skin, um, do we see, do you see more like fungal and bacterial infections on the skin, mm-hmm. open skin that just linger, there's mm-hmm. lingering mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it just looks so painful. Oh, oh. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, fungal infections specifically, um, like athlete's foot, but that can also happen on the fingernails. Um, mm-hmm. um, that is way more common in down syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so certainly they could be getting something called onychomycosis, which is a fungal infection of the nails, mm-hmm. um, bacterial infections. That is like, I think they are more prone to certain bacterial infections. Um, but that's something that's a bit more controversial. Okay. Um, 
you know, I think that um, COVID has not been very kind to many hands <laughs> because uh, we're just washing really alcohol. frequently, yeah. washing, and we're using hand sanitizers. Um, I mean, probably when I'm in the office, I hand sanitize my hands over a hundred times a day, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So that's been really challenging. Um, mm. So, it, it, you know, I, I think that what we can talk about potentially what we could talk about now is like good moisturizers. Um, yeah, because I, I do think that the amount of dry skin that they have, and also with, you know, with the amount of hand cleaning that they're having to do that, that can be, mm-hmm. that could yeah, be a big help. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so there's lots of different kinds of moisturizers out there, right? Like you go to the store and you're like, have dry skin. What am I going to buy? There's like 800 options. So I think to narrow it down and obviously I'm not going to endorse any specific brands, but just some like good, um, consumer knowledge. So there's three different levels of moisturizers that I like to talk about. Okay. So there's Mm -hmm. lotions that are in like a pump bottle. Okay. Yeah. That is the weakest option for you for moisturizing. Okay. Mm -hmm. That has the highest water and alcohol content. So if you have a kid with peeling fingers and, you know, dry skin and soreness around the nails, you're not really going to want to choose a lotion. Okay. Because it's not going to get us the barrier that we want. And the other thing is lotions can hurt on open skin, right? Mm -hmm. They sting Mm -hmm. and we never want that to happen. So in general, I mean, lotions can be great as like an all over body moisturizer, but if we're really trying to address, you know, specific dryness or sores on the hands, it's probably not the best choice. So anything in a pump bottle is probably not going to be the best purchase for you. So, okay. So the second level of moisturizers are creams, Mm -hmm. right? And so those typically come in jars. They sometimes come in tubes. They are a little bit thicker than lotions, but they can still, when you rub them in, they vanish pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, and they don't feel sticky and goopy. All right. So for a lot of people um, who don't like that tactile kind of more sticky goopy sensation a cream is the way to go and i would say for a lot of patients that's the one that they would prefer mm-hmm. so looking for something in a tube or a jar that says cream is helpful now the other thing to mention is just because something says baby on it <laughs> doesn't mean it's that it's like term. <laughs> good i know that it's like good for sensitive skin Yeah. Okay. So, um, baby products oftentimes, well, number one, they're more expensive. Um, and number two, they have a lot of hidden fragrances in them, like lavender. And, you know, we, I often say, you know, even separate from down syndrome, if, if, if you're, if the moisturizer makes your baby quote, smell like a baby, it's probably not good for your dry skin (laughs) eczema baby, you know? So, So that is just like kind of buyer beware just because it says baby doesn't mean that it's a great fit. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the strongest moisturizers we have out there are ointments or oils. All right. And so that would be something like petroleum jelly or like coconut oil, like Vaseline. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, So oftentimes when we're talking about like sores on 
the fingers using an ointment, your strongest barrier, your strongest moisturizer is probably going to be the best way to go. Now, I, oh, I, a lot of the times we'll demonstrate this for patients in the office because they're like, great doctor work. You want me to lather myself in Vaseline. That's disgusting. Like how am I supposed to like communicate on my iPad and on my phone and like open the door, right? Like yuck. Um, And I think um, in Down syndrome, there's a huge range of like either being hyposensitive or hypersensitive. And we really have to pay attention to that. Mm-hmm. So what I demonstrate is just because I'm saying you moisturize with Vaseline doesn't mean that you put like an ice cream scoop worth of Vaseline on your palm and like spread it all over. Right. Like yeah. you're putting like a pea size amount, like a very, very tiny amount. And oftentimes I say, do this right after you wash the hands mm-hmm. or hand sanitize the hands, put a little teeny bit on and just really quickly while the hands are still a little bit damp, like emulsify it onto your hands. Mm -hmm. And you will see that it doesn't leave a lot of residue. It's not super sticky and it's really going to help with, um, you know, protecting Mm -hmm. your skin and and the skin around your nails. So I think that is like a huge thing we can all be doing right now with COVID and Mm -hmm. hand sanitizing and hand cleaning. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to scoops, no ice cream, no ice cream scoops targeted. (laughs) And that's the thing. I feel like if it's made into a routine, especially for our guys, it's Mm -hmm. much easier for them to do it more often because it's not just a once a day kind of thing. I'm personally hate the feeling of my hands after I wash them when they feel that dryness and I immediately go for my, I'm using lotion level, but now that I've learned more might might go into the second level of so I'm also benefiting from this but yeah but I think for our parents that are like oh they're never going to do that or they're not going to want to do that it's slow but surely we can get them used to you know getting getting used to that feeling of the Vaseline or the glycerin on their hands and getting them to understand why they're doing it and what the benefit of it is and then you'll yeah totally yeah. I mean, and I think like something like Vaseline, it's so easy to find those teeny tiny containers, yeah. just like yeah. having one of those in a school bag or a purse exactly. or, yeah. you know, is really, yeah. really, really easy. Um, you know, right. I would also say with like soap, you know, and that's tricky, right? Because we need to use more antibacterial soaps right now with COVID, mm-hmm. but like it kind of goes into that same thing of like, if it makes your baby smell like a baby, like don't put it on your hands, but like, if it makes you smell like a lavender explosion, like (laughs) afterwards, it's like probably not the best thing for sensitive skin. Yeah. So, and that's a hard thing to control. I'm not saying you need to like carry around like hand soap, but you know, in the home, it can be a fairly easy thing to to try to control. So Yeah. Yeah. So I think you guys, that's such an awesome question. There's just like a huge range of what it could be, but I think like the general like skincare for dry, sore, cracked skin can be helpful. Great. Very good. Yeah. Um, Okay. So I wanted to move on to another thing that we've noticed. Um, Our students tend to get rashes on their faces more frequently, um, Mm -hmm. especially around the mouth. So what should a family do if they're noticing this happening? Yes, this is a huge reason why people come to our office. And so mm-hmm. um, let me just talk for a minute about like why that's probably happening. Mm-hmm. And then we'll talk about like specific diagnoses um, and just some like pearls on each. Um, so um, 
with Down syndrome, there's often um, decreased oral tone. So that the, the muscles around the mouth are just a little bit more relaxed. And, and I'm not the pro on that having a speech therapist on, <laughs> but, you know, but that what that causes is just, you know, more saliva to exit the mouth, like while speaking, or even while resting. And mm-hmm. saliva um, is a wonderful thing, but it contains a lot of enzymes, which means it, it contains a lot of things that help us break down our food and keep our mouth healthy. And when that is frequently um, around the mouth, um, on the skin around the mouth or on the lips, it can cause a lot of problems. Um, for a lot of people with Down syndrome, they, they also do have a um, larger tongue, which can also contribute to more um, saliva exiting the mouth on the lips and the skin around the mouth. And so kind of with all of that said, there's a variety of different skin issues that we can see. So one of the more common ones I see are just really severely dry, cracked lips. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then in that same category, we see something called angular chelitis, which means right at the corner of the mouth, you get these sores, um, which are extremely uncomfortable and painful. So, um, in terms of the, uh, dry cracked sore lips, a lot of that is happening just from the saliva itself. And so when we're going to talk about treatment, we're going to go back to what we were just talking about, about strengths of moisturizers. Mm-hmm. So I oftentimes say like, we need to be using an ointment, maybe not like you know, offense to cherry lip balm, but like, maybe not like something really fruity, like lip glossy, you know, um, maybe we do need to just be using Vaseline Mm -hmm. (laughs) and, and really avoiding fragrance fragrances and, um, trying to do that actually right before bed is super helpful. Okay. Before sleep, when your tone Mm -hmm. is even, well, your face is relaxed. So yeah, well, your face is relaxed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. More of a saliva. Correct. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And, and it's also, you're obviously not like wiping it as much in, at nighttime. So doing it before naps, doing it before bedtime, I would say it, and it depends on how extreme your lips are, but like doing it before you eat can be helpful, especially if you're going to be eating a nice big bowl of pasta sauce, you know, or pizza that has more acidic foods, more acidic foods can be huge. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So for a lot of people just trying to come up again with some system with using an ointment more regularly around the mouth can be helpful. Now with those little sores on the corner of the mouth, angular chelitis, um, as you guys had brought up there, there is more fungal infections that we can see in Down syndrome and potentially bacterial infections. There has actually been a study that says that People with Down syndrome may grow more candida, which is a specific kind of bacteria um, in the mouth. And that candida bacteria actually contributes to those little sores, that angular colitis. So mm-hmm. it's a mix of saliva and bacteria yeast kind of having a little party at the corner of the mm-hmm. mouth. So, ouch, <laughs> ouch right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of different contributors for that. So what I would tell you with that 
good pearls to like talk to providers about are that oftentimes using a very low potency topical steroid for a brief period of time to the corners of the mouth, just to help with the inflammation can be extremely helpful. And then in addition to that kind of mixing in an antifungal or an antibacterial ointment. Okay. So I often do like a two squirt treatment. Like I do a little squirt, a a topical steroid, a little squirt of an antifungal, mix it up and you put it on the corners of your mouth, you know, two to three times a day for about a week or two. And for a lot of people that that take care of it should Mm -hmm. be enough. Yep. And then when you start seeing it come back, that treatment for a couple of days and then, you know, go from there. Is there any indication that families would know whether it would be a fungal or bacterial infection? infection or does it really look the same? Um, so I would say bacterial infections tend to be more like crusty and weepy. So, and, and I would say a fungal infection, this is a huge generalization, but a fungal infection is usually a bit more like red open and sore, and there's not as much like crust. Hmm. So, um, you you know, specifically a bacteria like staph bacteria just likes to, you know, oh, we use all these gross terms in dermatology, but it causes like a honey golden crust. And so that's a little bit more indicative, (laughs) really gross, right? (laughs) But it's true when you look at pictures of it. So if it's crusty, I'd be worried about an infection. So, so yeah, so that's, that's good for people to know about those like possibility of doing combination treatments. Um, And I think it's so important that you said that it's Mm -hmm. painful because our students Mm -hmm. do not necessarily communicate. Oh yeah. But it could be a really distracting Mm -hmm. and irritating factor in their daily life that doesn't. Mm -hmm. Especially like Mm -hmm. around the mouth when you're eating, every time you eat, it hurts. Every time you talk it hurts every time Absolutely. you yawn it hurts right so. oh yeah mm-hmm. I mean I don't know about you but I've had I, I get angular colitis like with the season change here in New Hampshire yeah. really frequently yeah. and it's like the week that I have it I'm just miserable it's awful yeah. you know it's yeah. not it's very painful and I would say with mask wearing you know a lot of the the um angular yeah. colitis the bad chap lips are just more common because mm-hmm. of you know saliva being around the mouth um mm-hmm. so you know and then let's move on to the skin around the mouth because <laughs> mm-hmm. there's an yeah. one other skin condition i want to talk about that we see quite a bit that's called perioral dermatitis mm-hmm. um and perioral dermatitis, we don't know exactly what causes it. We do think that sometimes using inhaled corticosteroids can trigger it off. So like a topical steroid kind of around the mouth or an inhaled topical steroid around the mouth, which we see a bit more common in our patients with Down syndrome who have asthma or have mm-hmm. pulmonary issues when they're using an inhaled corticosteroid. So, mm-hmm. it, but at the same time, you can also get it from increased saliva around the mouth. Like we see it, you know, pretty frequently, I would say from mm-hmm. that too. So, mm-hmm. um, so perioral dermatitis looks like lots of little bumps, little pink bumps around the mouth. A lot of people think, oh my goodness, is this acne? And there's some subtleties to tell the difference, but no, it's usually not acne, um, especially if it's in a you know school-aged child. Mm-hmm. You can also get perioral dermatitis. The name is a bit deceiving. You can get little bumps kind of around the nostrils um, the and, and around the eyes. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the big 
pearl with if you think your loved one or if you think that you have perioral dermatitis, don't let someone automatically just say, oh, it looks like an eczema rash, put some topical steroid on it and it'll go away because, oh man, it might make it better for like a week, but then it will keep smoldering and then it'll get worse. Yeah. So we say like topical steroids are a frenemy. Like they look like a friend, but they're really an enemy for perioral term. And so there's lots of treatments for perioral dermatitis. There's topical antibiotics. There's um, there's another medicine called tacrolimus. There's oral antibiotics. Um, it's a treat. It's a, it's a condition that we can treat. Sometimes you have to trial and error a, a couple of things, but um, it is definitely something to be aware of with Down syndrome. So mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah, I knew there was a lot of things. This is just yeah. confirming. <laughs> this so yes, there's a lot of things. There's a lot of things around the mouth. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, one thing that I think people might show up around the mouth, but I, it doesn't necessarily are skin conditions related to celiac disease uh-huh. because celiacs, as we know, is more common in people with Down syndrome. Can you talk a little uh-huh. bit about how celiac affects the skin? What often happens here, I'll give you the context in clinic is... Uh-huh a family might be querying celiac disease. It's been put on their radar and their skin, the child's skin also has, you know, huge rashes, things like that. And once you get a gluten-free diet going, then the skin also clears up. So yeah, you chat a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a kind of diagnostic rash for celiac disease that we call dermatitis herpetiformis. It's a big, long word. Great names. I know. (laughs) Just Latin everywhere today. (laughs) It is. I know it is. I know I often say like in dermatology, we're we're all kind of amateur linguists because of all the silly things that we like to say. Um, Yeah, so we can just call it DH. Um, So dermatitis herpetiformis. Um, So that is a rash that is uh, intimately related with celiac. I mean, it's basically diagnostic for it. Um, It is um, oftentimes on the the butt, um, on the backs of the arms, on the backs of the legs. Mm -hmm. It has a very particular look to it. It's like very, very bright red little bumps. And sometimes they're they're kind of open and a little bit crusted. Um, I will tell you that a lot of people come to my office worried that they have celiac disease when they have little teeny tiny bumps on the backs of their arms that look like chicken skin. Yeah. Yeah. Like keratosis pilaris, which you do see in Down syndrome. Mm -hmm. That is just like, that's the most common form of dry skin in in Caucasians. And so, and oftentimes rightfully so, I mean, because it's hard to differentiate between all these conditions. People are like, oh my gosh, is this a sign of celiac? So I would say keratosis pilaris, like, no, I'm not really worried about that. But yeah, so if you do have DH, dermatitis herpetiformis, if you remove gluten from the diet, um, you will see that rash kind of dissipate. And sometimes removing gluten from the diet isn't enough. Sometimes we have to use other treatments too to help it. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly the skin can teach us about celiac. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are there other dietary conditions that also relate or have sort of their counterparts on the skin? So if there's other allergies or intolerances, et cetera, 
do you uh-huh. notice those in skin conditions or uh-huh. do the, is it just with celiacs? No, I would say there, there's other examples. I mean, I think that we used, we previously overemphasized the relationship with food allergy and eczema. Um, that is, that is Mm. actually, and there's definitely certain forms of eczema that we do see present on the skin. And it means that there may be, um, like an associated allergy, but I would say oftentimes, and for the most part, um, having food allergies and having eczema, they're not like contributing to each other. They may be like kind of walking side to side and they happen Mm -hmm. together, but they don't contribute to each other. Um, yeah. And another, um, common thing we see with like food, I would say are like nutritional deficiencies. So Mm -hmm. people who are not eating certain amounts of vitamins and minerals, we can see signs of that on the skin, Mm -hmm. um, like zinc deficiency or vitamin C deficiency, scurvy, um, but yeah, so we, we definitely can see the health of the body and the food that it's receiving. Um, it it can express itself through the skin. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, are there any other super common dermatological issues that you see kind of every day in your office that you think should be on the radar of sort of the families that are going to be listening here? Yeah. So, um, if they're couples, so one of the most common reasons why people come to my office are for pimples on the backs of their thighs and on their bottom, something we call folliculitis. Mm-hmm. That is extremely common in Down syndrome um, and um, is can be very uncomfortable and very itchy. Um, when we look at like large case studies of skin conditions and Down syndrome, this is usually the thing that's like highest on the list. Like most people um, coming to a dermatologist will come in for this reason. Um, and that is a condition that for a lot of people can be treated with like over-the-counter benzoyl peroxide wash or head cleanse wash um, pretty regularly in the shower. So it's mm-hmm. something that can certainly be addressed. Another common reason why people come to my office, and I definitely want to talk about today, is something called hydradenitis superativa or HS. Um, I know another crazy term. <laughs> Just trying to wrap um, my head around that one. No, <laughs> yeah, that HS. Yeah, HS is extremely painful. So mm-hmm. the way I like to describe this, at least on a podcast, is like extreme acne in the armpits and the groin area, but acne mm-hmm. to the point where you're getting open, weeping wounds and sores. Okay. So this is actually within the last five to 10 years has really come to the forefront of like dermatology literature and down syndrome. It's like, Whoa, what's going on here? Why are we seeing so many people with HS and down syndrome? And so I'm excited that there's like momentum behind this, but that said, it's very frequent. People will come into my office and they'll have this and they'll be like, nobody told me what this was. They've just said it was boils or it was staph infections, you know, for years. So we have to do more education about it. So hydradenitis um, tends to happen younger in Down syndrome. So um, even like pre-adolescent years, they can start developing these sores in the armpits, under the breasts, in the private area. Um, So it's like a chafing related, anything that's rubbing. It's actually, you know, that, so that's a great question. So it's not as much chafing related. It's, it's truly like an immune reaction Mm -hmm. 
um, kind of immune dysregulation. Again, kind of going back to this interferon, I think there's um, components of um, uh, your microbiome and interaction with bacteria in the outside world. And if you actually look at, um, when you look at pictures of this, it's like, huge pimples, you know, open sores. Yeah. Yeah. And so while, you know, while clothing and shaping can contribute to it, like, I don't, I I think there's a lot more to it with Down syndrome. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so it's gotten to the point where we think that this is so much more common with Down syndrome that the hydradenitis foundations in, in both Canada and the United States have recommended annual screening of people with Down syndrome. Okay. Great. So, yeah. So um, now there was not a specific recommendation about it, about age. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, I work with a bunch of awesome pediatric dermatologists on Down syndrome, and we've kind of said collectively, how about 10? <laughs> how okay. about 10 years old? Because it seems yeah. to present earlier. Um, so just encouraging, you know, providers to like look, look in the armpits and look in the groin area um, is really, really important. Um, so in hydradenitis, there's lots of different treatments. And that's one of those conditions, much like alopecia areata, you don't want someone just to throw their hands up and be like, I can't fix this because there's washes, there's topical prescriptions, there's oral medications, there's injectable medications, like something called Humira. Mm-hmm. Um, there's clinical trials at you know University of Colorado with those JAK inhibitors for this. So there's lots of different things that we can do. It is a very uncomfortable condition that we definitely need to be addressing. One of the, one of the things like when I were, when you were talking about folliculitis, one of the things that's tricky for our guys is good hygiene. Like they're very in and out of the shower and they don't want to take baths. Right. Would, would a good routine with that particular part of the hygiene would help in managing a lot of the skin conditions? A lot of, a lot of it does. And so that was actually something I wanted to bring up that like the biggest, most important thing for your dermatologist to do is to sit down with you and figure out like, how often are you bathing? Who's yeah. helping you? Do you like water? Do you not like water? Do you like showers? Do you like baths? Do you like, like foamy stuff? Do you like regular yeah. old bar soap, you know? And because that is going to make or break the success of a lot of this. And I think just being like open and honest. And I always say to people like, you're not going to get in trouble with what you're telling me. I'm just trying to like figure out how to help you, you know? Yeah. So, so if you only take a shower twice a week, maybe I'm going to use a slightly stronger medicated, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, shampoo or, or body wash. Right. So Mm -hmm. bathing routine is so, so, so helpful to understand and to be honest about when talking about these treatments and, Mm -hmm. you know, it, it, it's hard, like it's hard to get into good routines. And I, I always say too, a lot of the times when I meet a a patient, like we find a couple different things on the skin that they might want to address. And you could walk out of my office with this elaborate, like 10 point plan. And guess what? Like, it's just not going to happen. I know it wouldn't happen if you gave it to me, right? Like let's focus on one thing. So if it's like, if it's the bumps on your bottom and your thighs that are bugging you, then like, we're going to focus on that. We're going to try to get you into a routine, understand your routine to address that. So, so yeah. So we, I I mean, I try to be very, you know, reasonable and practical with that. So, yeah. So yeah. Um, 
you know, I think dandruff too, just talking about like other things we didn't touch upon. Dandruff is a super common reason to come in and see me. And I, I think one of the most important things for parents to know is that there are medicated prescription shampoos for bad dandruff. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You don't need to just be in like head and shoulders you know, sell some blue land. There are prescriptions like ketoconazole, 2% shampoo, cyclopyrox shampoo. Um, a lot of the times even knowing how to use the over the counters properly can help. Okay. So, um, I always say when we're talking about dandruff and we're talking about shampoos, we're talking about medicine for the skin on your head. I don't, you know, your hair, like whatever, you know, we can wash your hair with other things afterwards. These shampoos, like they need to get on your head. And so really massaging them in on the scalp and then ideally letting them sit for at least one or two minutes. And we oftentimes talk about like, how practical is that? How are we going to do that? Um, For a song. (laughs) Totally. We talk about songs all the time. Like you need to pick a song and sing a song. Um, You know, I think that is really, really helpful just knowing how to use these because a lot of the times, I mean, how are you supposed to know? You like get a shampoo or even get a prescription shampoo and you quickly like kind of fluff it around your hair and then you rinse it out. It's like, whoa, 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 you know? So you can actually use regular shampoos on your hair to wash your hair after you use these medicated shampoos. The other thing is um, there is some role for topical steroids sometimes with bad dandruff just for you know, maybe once a week, brief periods of time, um, you know, natural alternatives like tea tree oil, those can be extremely helpful, like exploring Mm -hmm. those with your, um, provider. Um, I will also say that, um, people with down syndrome tend to get a form of like facial dandruff a little bit more commonly, um, like scaling in the eyebrows and around the nose and using a lot of those anti-dandruff shampoos can be helpful with that. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Okay. Are there resources that you point people in the direction of good websites or Mm. information that's available so that people can kind of sort through? Because we've covered a lot of things. Yeah, totally. Okay. And and before you you jump in on that too, Dr. Rocket, I I was just going to say that in the healthcare guidelines, there's yes. nothing about dermatology in there. Am I correct? Because I was just looking through them a few yes. minutes ago. And like, yeah, especially when you nothing. were talking about, yeah, the screening for yeah. the HS. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I have to say that's not because the doctors who have like written these guidelines don't want to do that. It's yeah. because, you know, um, I mean, like Mar- Marilyn, well, I mean, we've talked to each other about this. Um, yeah there's just not a lot of like good data out there. So it was like very hard for them to put it in guidelines. And so, yeah, it's not there. Um, In terms of resources, like we're on it, like we're working on this. So um, I know with that review article that we just published in August um, that there's going to be an associated patient parent handout. um, Nice published through the um, Society for Pediatric Dermatology on hydratinitis. It is our goal and our dream with like multiple other, um, with other, you know, Down syndrome advocacy um, communities to kind of build upon those handouts. So I would say like, it's coming. Um, (laughs) um, I've done other um, podcasts, um, so I did one and I, I, you guys probably don't mind that I say this, but like one with Kishore Velody um, mm-hmm, out of yeah. Pittsburgh, where yeah. we actually like 
talk through pictures, which I think could be a helpful resource. Um, I know that probably pretty soon there's going to be a two-part lecture series released through Boston Children's Hospital that I've like put together that actually goes through like treatment slides. So you can have a lot of the names of these conditions. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think that like those handouts are going to be huge. And we're just in the process of, of kind of getting them out there. Um, Should people check back at Geisel or boss or UMass? Yeah, totally. So, um, so we are just actually next week. No, week after, we're um, we're starting um, a Down syndrome skin clinic at Dartmouth, and awesome. so and we just like we have a kind of nascent little baby website right now, but like we eventually are going to have all of our patient handouts um, and all of the lectures and all that compiled on that website. So, you know, um, we're working hard to get all those resources out there. Mm-hmm. And in your experience, do most, this might be this might be a weird question, but do most dermatologists in general have a good understanding of some of these conditions like folliculitis and HS? So like, cause obviously you specialize in DS and we don't have mm-hmm. very many of, of Dr. Jillian works around the world. So would parents, when they go to their dermatologist, would most of them be aware of these things and aware of the treatments that you mentioned? Yes. I would say like, fortunately, a lot of these skin conditions are like common things that a dermatologist would see. And so, and I've talked about that. Actually, I just had um, a group of families speak with first year medical students uh, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, that was like a message from two of the families to these young doctors. It's like, just because my that. kid has Down syndrome and like you don't specialize in Down syndrome doesn't mean that you can't help him. Yeah, yeah. Like, great. I would Drew. say this, right? Like I would yeah. say the same things with these skin conditions. You know, if we were to put these on a, you know, on uh, yeah. up on a PowerPoint slide of all the skin conditions I just talked about, like yeah you know, dermatologists can handle these things. And I would say, you know, myself and a lot of my colleagues, um, you know, we are trying to educate more dermatologists about this. So Dr. Christy Holland and myself just gave a talk at the American Academy of Dermatology for, I think, well over an hour about a lot of these conditions. So we're trying to get more information out there. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I would say totally just go, go talk to a local dermatologist and, mm-hmm. and um, derm- great, great info to bring to that dermatologist then yeah, is, totally. my student, or my child prefers foam or doesn't like sticky right. hands or, you mm-hmm. know, bring right. those things to them. Yep. And hopefully you can find some workarounds. It seems like there's lots of treatment options available. Oh, definitely. Awesome. Yeah, definitely. And I would say dermatology is like an extremely small world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so like, you know, we all kind of find each other if we need each other. So, yeah. you know, go, go, you know, go get help. They can help you. <laughs> yeah. And we'll, we'll put a link um, on our episode page. In addition to what Dr. Bork mentioned to the down syndrome clinic to you resource that Dr. Scott, yes. wrote, because yeah. that's a really great resource for parents where they, you can enter information about your child and or adult and it gives you all the questions to take to your doctor it gives you the resources that you can arm yourself with when you go see a dermatologist that may not have experience with down syndrome so that at least you can be like hey i heard folliculitis is very common what can i do about it so Mm -hmm. yeah that's a really good one 
Yeah, that's a great, that's such an awesome program. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's really, really good. Yeah, so. I'm glad he put that. Well, not he, just him, but the whole team put that. The forward. whole team, yeah. yeah. Um, well, we hugely appreciate you joining us today, Dr. Rourke. You've been very educative. We've had a grand time with you. So no, learn oh a my lot. Gosh. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you. Sure. The Lowdown, a Down Syndrome podcast, can be found on all major podcast platforms. Subscribe today so you never miss an episode. And let us know what you think by leaving a rating and a review. Be sure to visit the webpage for this episode at dsrf.org slash podcast for additional resources related to the topic. You can also follow DSRF Canada on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube for updates from the Lowdown and the Down Syndrome Resource Foundation. Want to know more about Down Syndrome? Class is now in session at DSRF's online learning portal powered by Thinkific. User have called DSRF's resource brilliant, fantastic, and absolutely first class. Now, our educational platform puts these tools right at your fingertips. Start with our free introductory course Down Syndrome 101 or dive deep into the issue that matters most to you by enrolling in subjects like mental health or relationships and sexuality for people with Down syndrome. Each course guides users through video, audio, and written resource to help you better understand and support the person in your life with Down syndrome. All courses and subscriptions include access to the DSRF Circle of Support. Through this social community, users can interact and learn from one another and engage directly with DSRF. So, what are you waiting for? Class is about to begin. And there's an empty desk just for you. Visit dsrf.org slash thinkific to sign up today. Got questions? We have answers. 321's Canada's Down Syndrome magazine brings leading-edge expertise from Canada's top Down Syndrome professionals, as well as parents and people with Down Syndrome, direct to your inbox four times per year. Brought to you by the Down Syndrome Resource Foundation and Canadian Down Syndrome Society. 321 tackles issues important to people with Down Syndrome and their families at every stage of life. From mental and physical health and development, relationships, employment, independence, and more, we will equip you to explore whatever your future holds. 321 Magazine, information and inspiration for Canada's Down Syndrome community. Download the latest issue and subscribe for free at dsrf.org slash magazine. The Lowdown, the Down Syndrome podcast, is a production of Down Syndrome Research Foundation. Learn more at dsrf.org and join the conversation at DSRF Canada on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And Lowdown is hosted by 
Mala Podan and Hannah Mahmood, and it's produced by Glenn Hughes. The lowdown theme music and just do was written and recorded by Rick Scott. <laughs>